Let's take our Bibles now and turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 2 this morning, Hebrews chapter 2. There was a reported uh, story out in the, east, in the eastern part of the country some years ago of a lady who was driving her car uh, down the street and she noticed a, a truck, a large truck right behind her. It was very uncomfortably close and so she sped up to get away but the truck sped up as well. And so she got even more nervous, and so she turned off to a, a side road, and the truck followed her. And now she realizes that this, as this person is following her. And so she go, gets out on the main highway, and he came with her as well. She, she sped up and went through a, a, a red light, but the truck ran the light as well. And now she was in a panic. And so she drove into a filling station, jumped out of her car, opened the, and, and ran and started hollering for help. The truck driver who had been in this larger truck, was right behind her. The truck driver pulled up beside of her, of her car, jumped out of his truck, ran over to the back door of the car, opened it up, and drug out a rapist, a would-be rapist from that car. This lady had been running from the wrong person the whole time. She was running from the one who would save her from the great tragedy, not realizing the great, the great peril and danger that was right there in the back seat. I think that's a pretty good metaphor of where we are right here in this passage of Scripture. Uh, we're looking at a group of people, Christian people, mostly Jewish apparently, who have uh, been, they're saved, most of them, and yet for some reason they're, they're running away from the Lord. They're, they're seeing the Lord as one who's causing damage to them or danger to them. They're afraid of Him rather than being afraid of the sin that is trying to destroy them. And so most of this book is about talking to people who are backtracking, who are moving the wrong direction away from the Lord, not realizing He's the Savior for eternity as well as for life now. And they were, they were scared of Him. So having, having proven the superiority of Christ now, in chapter 1, which we looked at, we've been looking at, in chapter 1 is one of the great passages in all the Word of God concerning the superiority of Jesus Christ. So he's trying to show them that, that the Lord is, is this wonderful, superior uh, Savior that they are running from, and even greater than the angels that they seem to, to, to love to turn to. And so uh, he's done that in chapter 1. We've come to the end of that. We've moved into chapter 2, and now he wants to make application in chapter 2 to what he's been teaching in chapter 1 concerning the superiority of Jesus Christ and the superiority of the message of salvation that Jesus Christ brings, his so great salvation as he says in the first few verses of this chapter. And he's going to do that by, uh, by addressing the salvation message from three different angles. First of all, we have two warnings, and we looked at those last week. I'm going to review those this week as we move into them. He starts off by warning them in verse 1 about drifting away from the message. He says, For this reason, and that reason is the superiority of Christ and all that He is, for this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. So he starts off with a warning about drifting away from this great message and of Christ who gives that great message. And he tells them they must pay much closer attention to these things than they're doing at that time. And we, we spent quite a bit of time on that because if we don't pay attention, he says, we will drift. And that seems to be very simple. So he's given us one of the simplest, clearest messages possible. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to know this. 
You don't have to be steeped in the, in the scriptures per se. You don't have to be an academic. You don't have to go on to Bible college or seminary. All you have to do is pay attention to what he's saying here. He's saying you need to pay much closer attention to this message that we have given you. Are you going to drift away? And so uh, we as Christians here, everyone in this room, we need to be very careful that we don't get bored with the things of God that we don't allow ourselves to, to, to uh, take these things for granted, that we think that we already know everything there is to know about the truth of God's Word. We've already heard it all. We need to keep pressing forward. Even Paul said he was doing that, forgetting the things that were behind, pressing on to the things before him. We, we cannot become idle. We cannot become complacent. We must never grow used to the greatest message ever told, the message of Jesus Christ and His redeeming work for us. But we must pay close attention to that. And uh, you might say to me, well, Gary, that sounds good, but how do I do that? And so we will review quickly some of the things we often say about about what you can do to pay closer attention. Let's start off with the fact that you need to have a Bible reading program. And you need to be reading the Bible. First of all, a Bible reading program. Now, that's not that hard. You just have to sit down and make a plan. It doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be detailed. Just set aside a time every day and, to, and open up the Word of God and read it. Uh, you may have to go to bed 20 minutes earlier, so you can get up 20 minutes earlier. Uh, you need to have a place. You need to have a Bible. You need to have your, your pens and so forth available. And you sit down and just read the Bible. I mean, vary your reading. Uh, read, the, read the Gospels for a while to get, get a good picture of Jesus. Go to the epistles and the teachings that are given there. Go back to the Old Testament and read through one of those books there. Vary your reading, and over time you'll be reading through all the scriptures and understanding what the Word of God says. You cannot pay close attention to the Word of God if you're not reading the Word of God. That's about as simple as it gets, isn't it? And yet many Christians, people that I think truly love the Lord, uh, do not spend time consistently with the Lord in His Word, and that is deathly. Okay, I want to see how well you know the Bible. All right, I got a test for you. Ready? This is silly, stupid. I shouldn't even do it, but I'm going to. All right. There was a pastor, a guy wanted to be a pastor of a local church, and the elder said, "Sit down. What do you know about the Bible? So give us an overview of your understanding of Scripture." And so as I go through this, see how well you know the Bible. All right. The man looked at at them and he said, "This." Once there was this man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among thorns. And the thorns sprung up and choked him. And as he went on, he didn't have any money, and he met the queen of Sheba, and she gave him a thousand talents of gold and a thousand changes of clothes. He got into a chariot and drove furiously, and when he had driven under a big juniper tree, his hair got caught on a limb of the tree, and he hung there many days, and the ravens brought him food to eat and water to drink, and and he ate five thousand loaves of bread, and... (laughs) And two fishes. One night when he he was hanging there asleep, his wife Delilah came along and cut off his hair, and he dropped and fell off off to the ground. But he got up and went on, and it began began to rain. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights, and, and he hid himself in a cave, and he lived on locusts and wild honey. Then he went on till he met a servant who said, Come, take supper at my house. And he made excuses and said, No, I won't. I won't. I have married a wife, and I can't go. Afterwards, he went on and came to Jericho, and when he got there, he looked up, and he saw the old queen Jezebel sitting up high on a windowsill. And she laughed at him, and he said, throw her down out of there. 
and they threw her down. He said, throw her down again. And they threw her down 70 times seven. <laughs> and, and of the fragments they remained, that remained, they picked up 12 baskets full. <laughs> but besides the woman and her children, and they said, blessed are the peacemakers. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be? <laughs> now, if you believed any of that, then you need to have a Bible reading program. Right? Okay, I realize most of you aren't that far off, but, but there's so much in Scripture, so much that edifies, so much that builds us up, and so much that helps us. We have to know the basics as well as the deeper things of God. And so we reckon, re- would encourage you to a Bible reading program. Secondly, listen to the sermons and the Sunday school classes and so forth that we have available here. Take notes if, you, if it's helpful to you and needed. Uh, take advantage of the things we offer you, the manuscripts and the sermon notes. Uh, the children notes that some of our ladies put together back there are uh, actually uh, pretty, pretty good. Uh, a lot of, I've seen, lot, I haven't ever seen in most places notes for adults that good. So, and you get to fill in the blank too. I can be better than that. I've seen some of the kids get those notes and fill them in before I preach. So uh, pr- apparently it isn't all that hard. But, but uh, there they are for you to take advantage of those kinds of things. Join a Bible study. A lot of people need accountability. You need somebody that's going to call you to account and say, have you read the passage of Scripture this week? What did you get out of it? Bible studies are very helpful as we help one another walk with Christ. Seek out mature believers. Don't just hang with people that talk nonsense all the time. Find people that love the Lord and love His Word and talk about the Word, and they will encourage you. Those kind of people just encourage us to be around those types of folk. Um, Read and listen to the best. You only have so much time, right? So read and listen to the very best. When I hear people say, well, I don't have time to read the Bible or whatever, and then I find out they're watching baseball games on television, they're, they're spending hours on Facebook or, or Twitter or, or whatever else they got out there, TikTok or TalkTech, I don't know, whatever they're doing. And, and they're doing all these kinds of things, and, uh, and they're, they're playing their sports, they're doing all that, but they don't have time 15 minutes a day to open the Word of God and be involved in the things that would help you grow in Christ. Uh, that we have to see that for what it is, right? That's a neglect. That is, is an excuse. And that leads us right into the next warning, and that is neglect. He's talked about the danger of drifting. Now he talks about, in verse 2, the danger of neglect. And he says in verse 2, For if the word spoken through the angels prove unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Neglecting would be uh, the intensification of drifting. We, we, call, we can unintentionally drift. and We don't realize we're drifting. But to neglect is a choice. I can have a, a tire on my car that's low and not notice it. And I can go along like that for a while. But if my sensor on my, my dashboard comes on and tells me my tires are low and I neglect to at least check it out, then that's neglect. And I've chosen not to pay attention to what I should pay attention to. The argument here is this. There was a message given to us, as he said in chapter 1, verse uh, 2, verse 1 and 2, through the prophets in many portions and in many ways. And in chapter 2, verse 2, the angels were involved in this as well. Uh, the angels had a part in giving us the Old Testament law. And so uh, if the argument is if that message of the Old Testament was so vital, so wonderful, that the prophets and, uh, and the uh, angels were involved in giving it, how much greater is the message given to us through Jesus Christ? 
That's, that's his argument. How, if, we, if, if the Old Testament people, some of them neglected the message of the Old Testament, which they often did, how much hor- more horrible is it that we would neglect the message given to us by Jesus Christ? Um, if they re- deserved a penalty for neglecting the law, what do we deserve for neglecting the message of Jesus Christ? You know, it's one thing to break a law of the state. It's another thing to defy someone that we love or who loves us. I can break the speeding laws and get a ticket and justly deserve that. But if I break my marriage vows, that's far worse. Because I have now sinned not against the state, I've sinned against love. And when we sin against the law, that's bad. We have penalties we deserve. But when we sin against the love of Christ, the one who died for us, the one who, who saved us, when we sin against him, it's so much worse. And that is the argument he's talking about here. When the Old Testament people broke the law, they paid a price. If we break the message of Christ, turn our back on the Savior, so much worse do we deserve. I've been having a great battle this summer. It's a horrible battle. You're going to feel sorry for me when I tell you. It's a battle with a spider. I have this little playhouse cabin in my backyard. Many of you have seen it. I go there almost every morning uh, to read my Bible, to pray, to read books, to, to be out there. I'm usually out there two or three hours in a morning at my little cabin. But as I walk out to my little cabin this summer, almost all summer, there has been a spider web right over the doorway of the porch part. And spider web is there. It's been there all summer. A few times I didn't duck well enough and I got some of my hair, which I didn't like very much. But, uh, and, and so every day this summer, I have knocked that spider web down with a broom. And every night this summer, the spider has built it back. And him and I have been going back and forth all summer in this spider contest. And I keep saying to myself over and over, I, I'm never going to be rid of the spider web until I'm rid of the spider. I've got to kill the spider. But I never did. I neglected it until this week. A couple of days ago, I got up early. The sun wasn't up yet. It was dark. And I had missed the day before out there. I'd been doing something else. I hadn't gone out. The spider was busy. And he built a much larger web over my doorway. And I walked right through it with my face. You ever, you ever do that? That is so much fun. And I said, enough's enough. On top of that, as I walked into the cabin itself, turned on the light, I noticed I brought the spider with me. He was, a, he was huge. I mean, he was, he was a gigantuan spider. And there he was hanging from my hair, you know. I said, enough is enough. So I looked at the spider. I, I drew myself up to my full height. And I looked around at the spider eyeball to eyeball. I said, Mr. Spider, we've had enough of this. It's time for a battle. And so I shook him off. I stomped him into the ground and I killed him. And he's dead. Yeah, he's dead. So he's gone. Now the spider web is gone, right? The only way I'm going to get rid of the spider web is get rid of the spider. We're not going to, to get rid of sin unless we kill that which causes us to sin. We're not going to walk with Christ until we deal with that which is causing us to neglect him. But here's the sad part of my story. He has a cousin. Okay? It's not over. 
The battle is not over. Don't you wish you could just confess your sin and you could turn a new page and you leave here today and say, I'm going to be a student of the word of God and I'm going to grow in Christ and no more problems ever again. And yet that's not going to happen in this lifetime, is it? And so the spiders keep coming back. This morning I met his cousin. But this morning I killed him right off the bat. Okay. We'll see what happens tomorrow. He may have a whole family coming after me. And they're getting bigger. I mean, they're, they're just gigantic spiders. But, you know, that's, that's a great, I think, a great picture of our battles in the Christian life. If we neglect that which keeps us from walking with Christ, don't be surprised that we are drifting from Him. We have to deal radically with those issues that get in the way. Now we move on to verses 3 and 4, and he has one more thing he wants to tell us here concerning his great salvation. We can have absolute confidence in the message. The message we've been given, we can have absolute and complete confidence in. Verse 3, he goes on and he says this, After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testified with them both by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. If we are to pay closer attention to what we've heard, then it's important to consider what have we heard, right? What is the message that we've heard? If the message we've heard is about our great salvation, then the logical question should be what is so great about it? Why does the scripture tell us it is so great? And the author of Hebrews gives us three reasons why it's so great. First of all, because it was proclaimed by Jesus Christ himself. In verse 3, it is proclaimed by Christ himself. Now, if we go back to verse 1 of chapter 1, it says, After he had spoken long ago in the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us through his Son. And then he says in chapter 2, uh, verse 2, that, that the, the angels were involved in giving the Old Testament law. So he's looking at how the Old Testament was given through the prophets and through the angels. And that message was great. That message was vital. What we learn about the law in the Old Testament is absolutely essential for us to understand our Christian life. But there's a much greater message. And for a much greater message, we needed a much greater messenger. Angels weren't enough, even though they're perfect, sinless beings. The prophets, as, as godly as they might have been, were not enough for this message. This message had to come through the one who's absolutely flawless, absolutely perfect, the God himself, through Jesus Christ himself. A message, the importance of the message will determine how we go about delivering that message if I want to call the, the funeral home to de- determine the date, the time, or so forth of a funeral, I might have one of the secretaries call and f- confirm that time. But I'm not going to have the secretaries call the r- grieving family and tell them that uh, I'm sorry for their loss. I will deliver that message myself. Jesus Christ didn't send ambassadors to give us this message. He brought the message himself. To us, That's the importance of that message. Now secondly, the second reason is so great salvation. It, w- it was confirmed by eyewitnesses. In verse 3, he goes on to say, How shall we escape, escape if we neglect so great a salvation? As it was first spoken to the Lord, it was confirmed by those who heard. 
How did the salvation message spread? Now, we know Jesus Christ never left the land of Canaan. Jesus never, never moved beyond that space, pretty much. He never wrote a book. He never had a message on radio. He, he never did anything like that. How was the message going to spread around the world? It had to spread, be spread by those he had given it to, which is his apostles. In the Great Commission, as found in the Gospels several times and also in the book of Acts, the Lord personally sent his apostles to take the message throughout the world. Look at some of the passages. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. This is one of the great commissions. As a matter of fact, the last one Jesus gave. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit, he's talking to his apostles, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. How could 12 men take this gospel message all over the earth? Remember, they didn't have cars. They didn't even have horses. They didn't have donkeys. These are poor common people. They walked everywhere. They'd, most of them had never left where they'd, within 30 miles of where they were born. How do they take the message to the end of the earth? They have to take that message to the end of the earth through those they would give the message to. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, after Peter's great sermon, there's several thousand people came to Christ at that time. And then they started to gather. What did they gather to do? Acts 2, 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and a fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayer. Notice that first thing. They came for the apostles' teaching. They came to hear what the apostles had to say. Where did, they, where did the apostles get their message? We've already seen in Hebrews from Jesus himself. They are spreading the word of Christ. So when these people get saved, they hunger for the word of God. They hunger for the message of Jesus. They can't get enough. And so they gather in droves. Matter of fact, at first, every day, they came together not to hear great preaching. These guys weren't great preachers. They were common guys. None of them had been to Bible college. None of them had taken a course on preaching. But they had the words of Jesus, the words of God. And when the people began to hear the words of God, they couldn't get enough. They're listening to to what Jesus had to say, and it it changed their lives. It transformed them. And they gathered day by day by day to hear from the apostles what the Lord had given them. And then they would go out doing what? As they, as they began to spread, they did what? They would, they would go out in the other, the, what is probably the best known Great Commission passage, Matthew twenty eight twenty, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, And though I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, a lot of times people miss that part. We're teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded us. They weren't teaching the Old Testament law, although that was foundational, and they did teach the Old Testament. But what was new and what was life-changing was the teachings of Jesus, the words of Christ. And And he sent them out to teach the world his message. Now, of course, they could do that only through the help of the others. As thousands came to Christ, and as the Lord began to to spread those people around the globe through persecutions and whatever else, they began to go all over the place, all over the known world. In time, they'd, they'd covered all the known world with believers, and what did they take with them? The simple message of Jesus Christ. Never get sidetracked by that. 
Now, we, we want to dig deep into our theology. We want to know the harder things of Scripture. Those are, those are very important. We do a lot of that here. But never forget the simple message of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ has come to save us from sin, to ransom us from, our, from the sinfulness that is destroying us and will condemn us for all eternity. That is the message. That is what we teach. That is what Jesus sent us to do. And so he sends them throughout all the world to do that. And they did. Millions of people in the next century or two came to Jesus Christ all over the globe. You're here today because people obeyed these things and took the word of God wherever they went and and continued to spread that word of God. But here's the next question here. How do we know the message the apostles taught and which was spread? How do we know it was the right message? How do we know they were the right messengers? After all, Paul warned us himself of false apostles. How do we know we got the right thing? How do we know as we come together as a church and we open this book, which, by the way, is the apostles' teachings that are now in written form, how do we know it's correct? How do we know we didn't get duped and the Gnostics are right or the Judaizers are right or some other cult is right? How do we know that this is the real deal? That's what he wants to talk about in verse 4. And he says this, God also testified with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. God has gone on record verifying the message of the gospel that was communicated through his son by, in the, by giving it to the original hearers of that message who would take that message around the globe and he verified that their message was correct by the miraculous powers that he gave them. I want you to note that here in verse 4. He he testified with them. He verified that they were his spokesmen, both by signs and wonders and various miracles and the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. Let's analyze this a bit. First of all, who is he talking about? He's talking about the original apostles, the original 11. Uh, It says in Acts 2.43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Now this is the first church. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Now I'm going to give you a challenge here. This is the first of those, but the, the miracles, the signs, the healings, the wonders that verified that their message was God's message, the message of Jesus, was those miracles took place through the apostles. So if you doubt that, I want to encourage you to take this week and read through the book of Acts and note every time there is a miracle, a healing, or so forth in the book of Acts, and you'll find with, with only two exceptions, every time... It was at the hands of the apostles. The two exceptions are Stephen and Philip, who were close associates and sent out by the apostles. They also did some miracles. That's it. Every Tom, Dick, and Harry in the church wasn't doing miracles. People weren't doing this. was at the hands of the authentic apostles and prophets to verify that their message was actually the message Christ had sent them with. It's Acts 2.43. And then we see over in the epistles, in Ephesians 2.20, for example, uh, speaking of the church, having been built on the foundation 
of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. That means that on the foundation of the original prophets and apostles, the message of Christ is the foundation of the church. And then it goes on to say in verse uh, 5 of chapter 3, he says, which uh, in other uh, generations was not made known to the sons of men, as has now been revealed to the holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Who received the message? Not everybody having a mystical experience at home, Jesus showing up in their living room and giving new revelation. It was communicated, revealed to the apostles and prophets in the Spirit. The message came from the apostles through the Spirit to us. And that's the message that we have before us today. Later on, Timothy, in 2 Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy. And he says in 2 Timothy chapter 1. And remember, Timothy now is a second generation servant of the Lord. Tim, Paul is the apostle. He has brought Timothy to Christ, or at least part of his early training. And he sent him on to, to minister. And here's what he says to Timothy. Retain the standard of sound words which you've heard from me. Okay, now where did Timothy get the message? He got it through Paul. He didn't say go out and find some new truth. He didn't say sit around in your living room waiting for a revelation from Jesus Christ. He said you retain, you keep, you maintain that, that message, those sound words that you have heard from me. How could somebody be that arrogant to say you, you teach what I teach? Because he's a, an apostle of Christ had received the revelation of Jesus himself. He says, and in the faith and the love which are in Christ Jesus, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure. What is the treasure? It's the word of Christ, which has been entrusted to you. Who entrusted it to him? Paul did. As the, as the apostle, the inspired apostle of Jesus Christ, he entrusted that message to Timothy. Now, what was Timothy to do with that? Chapter 2, verse 2, in one of our most uh, beloved verses on discipleship. The things which you have heard from me, from Paul, in the presence of many witnesses, you're not the only one, entrust these two faithful men who will be able to teach others also. What was Timothy's mission? To take the words of Christ, communicated by the Spirit to the Apostle Paul, who had given it to him, he was to take that same message, not a new message, but the message been given to him by Paul through the Spirit, and he was to take it to other faithful men. And those other faithful men was to take it to other faithful men, and so forth. Yeah. There's the methodology that he's given us there. And how do we know Paul is even right? Well, here it is. Wonderful verse you ought to know. 2 Corinthians 12, 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. In 2 Corinthians, there was some challenge in the apostleship of Paul. And he, that's where he talks about these false apostles. Chapter 11. He says, well, how do you know I'm the right one? How do you know I'm the one that received divine revelation of the word of Jesus and I'm passing it on to you? How do you know? Because there were signs of a true apostle. And he, those signs he performed among them. Signs and wonders and miracles. These weren't being performed by all the congregation. These were being performed only by the apostles and a few hand-picked prophets who were part of, of that whole thing. These are called sign gifts. There are other gifts in Scripture 
or you can call them normal gifts or, or, or service, service gifts. Everybody in the body of Christ is gifted by the Lord to, to minister for him. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4, it says, Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are a variety of ministries, and the same Lord, and there's a variety of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons, but to each one is given the, mani- the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Are you a Christian? If you are a Christian, then the Holy Spirit lives in you. If the Holy Spirit lives in you, He has given you abilities, we call them often spiritual gifts, abilities to minister to one another, to, to build up the body for the common good. Every child of God has them. You don't have to identify them. You don't have to write them in a book. All you have to do is serve Christ with the abilities He's given you. Those are service gifts that He gives all Christians. But there's also sign gifts that, uh, that are found in Scripture. For example, John verse chapter 3 and verse 2 says this, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, this Nicodemus, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus, who was not yet a believer, recognized the authenticity of the message of Jesus because Jesus did what no one else could do. It was a sign that God was with him. We've already seen 2 Corinthians 12, 12, where Paul says the same. Jump back very quickly to John chapter 20 with me. John chapter 20, in verses 30 to 31, where we come to the end of the Gospel of John. And John is saying that uh, he has written many things here about Jesus. John chapter 20, verse 30 says this, Therefore, at many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples that are not written in this book. But these have been written, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that, you, that believing you may have life in His name. Jesus performs signs, wonders, and miracles not to dazzle the congregations, not to impress people, not even basically to heal people, although he did that. Jesus did these things to show who he was. He was the Son of God, and believing in him would give you eternal life. And that is why he's done that. And so signs, as we go back to our passage, is very important. He speaks about those signs in verse 4. Signs point us in a direction and give us confidence how we need signs. Marsha and I were in England about 25 years ago, and uh, we rented a car over there to drive around. Uh, we, we, we really enjoyed it. It was a marvelous experience. It was also, it's also extremely stressful. One of the reasons it was stressful is you're driving on the other side of the road, and there, there are all the cars there are clutches, which I, I knew how to do that, but you're shifting with the left hand on a five-speed clutch situation, and all the roads are backwards, everything's over there is backwards, and I'm trying to drive this car. And it was one of the most stressful experiences of our life. Marsha just about died herself, just watching me drive, stress, talk about stress, it was overwhelming, she often had her leg up over her head trying to guard against me hitting something, and uh, it, it was a pretty scary thing. If, if there are such a thing as guardian angels, I'm not sure there are. But if there are, 
Mine retired after that week. <laughs> it was extremely stressful. But there's another thing that was stressful. We discovered in England, at least where we were at that time, that the English people don't apparently believe in signs. When you're going somewhere, they just assume you know where you're going, apparently, because there was never any sign, almost never, of where you to go. It's kind of like, go down to the black cow and turn right. Go, go three kilometers to the three sheep and turn left. You know, there, we, just, we, we were lost all the time. Now, I get lost here a lot, but over there, we were just constantly lost. It was so stressful trying to find our way home at night. And it seemed like every night we went a new route and never could make it. We needed signs. It wasn't like America where you have signs everywhere. It was just stressful. Signs give us direction and they give us confidence. Signs point us to where we ought to go and it tells us we're on the right road. I'm always happy to know I'm on the right road because I'm not always sure about that and when I'm driving my car. These signs tell us that we have, are going the right direction and it gives us confidence that the message is the one that God wants us to have. Now these Hebrew Christians, look at verse 4 again, they had seen these signs, but where, where had they seen them? Not at church, not among their own congregation. Notice very carefully, and you might want to circle this about five times in the text, God also testifying with them. That's missed so often. He didn't say testifying with you, are the people in your church, past tense, them. Who's the them? The apostles and the prophets who were vindicated by the signs and wonders of Christ. The Lord vindicated, the Lord authenticated the message of, through the apostles, through the signs and the wonders that He had given them, these apostles, who passed it along to them. These, these miracles and these signs, that's just kind of a application of sorts, these are not things that the Lord wanted us to chase after for the rest of church history. And much of the church today, worldwide, is all enamored with these miracles and healings and tongues and prophecies, which my friends have all ceased with the, with the closure of the New Testament and the death of the apostles. These were signs given to them that they had the message that was right and that message was a message given to us. We're not to be chasing after miracles and signs and wonders. We're to chase after Jesus Christ. If you want to know Jesus Christ, turn to His Word and He'll tell, us, tell you all about Him. Not to signs and wonders to distract. Is that a biblical teaching? Well, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we've already seen that He spoke long ago to the fathers and prophets, but now He's spoken in these last days through His Son. Do you see a third time of revelation there? You do not. There's two periods of revelation. The Old Testament revelations and the revelation through Jesus Christ and His apostles. This passage here, 1 Corinthians 13, 9 to 10, I'll just give you a few quickly. For we know in part and we ought prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. I think that's in a context of the truth of the knowledge of the Word of God. When the Word of God was complete, there's no longer needing of other prophecies. In Jude 3, verses and 3 and 17. Beloved, while we were making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. It is once for all been handed down. How? 
But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do not chase new revelations. Remember the words given to us by our apostles of the Lord Jesus. Peter agreed, chapter 3, verse 2 of Second Peter, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and commandment of the, our Lord and Savior, spoken by your apostles, not your pastor, not your missionaries, your apostles. Then, of course, Revelation 22 ends with a warning. I testify to you, to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of this book of this prophecy, God will take away his part in the tree of life and for the holy city which are written in this book. What a, what a hor- terribly important warning to us not to add to Scripture, not to take away from Scripture. It is, it is fulfilled. It is complete. Our Scriptures are trustworthy. They're the greatest message we've ever, ever possible. They give us the greatest message of Christ and His Gospel. And as somebody recently said, the Bible will never need a patch from the cloud. Doesn't need it. It's complete. The author of the book of Hebrews then was not arguing for the case concerning cessationism of miracle gifts. The people already knew that. They already knew these gifts had, uh, had come in the apostles, not with them. He's arguing that even though they knew these things, they were still, nevertheless, neglecting the great salvation God had given them. That's the great warning. That's the great concern. Don't chase miracles, he said. Go after the great message Christ had given them. Yet for all they knew... And all they had experienced, some were chucking it all and were going back to an inferior way of life, perhaps even leaving Christ himself. They were perhaps ready to deconstruct some of them. Let us not be those people. I like a little story. I've read this years ago in a little book on Psalm 23 written by Robert Ketchum, the former leader of the General Association of Regular Baptist Churches. He had a friend who liked to go around speaking to children. And he was speaking to children at a local church, and he asked the children, this friend of his did, how many of you children can recite the 23rd Psalm? Several hands went up, but one little girl right on the front, four and a half years old, cute little blonde hair, raised her hand that she could do it. Well, he was skeptical. He said, can you really recite all the 23rd Psalm? And the little girl nodded her head, I can't. So I said, okay, come on up. So she came on up on the platform, turned around to the people, did a little bow, and said, The Lord is my shepherd. That is all I want. Bowed and walked back. And the pastor said, How can you beat that? No, did she do all five or six verses of Psalm 23? No. Did she catch the essence of Psalm 23? Yes. Did she catch the essence of the Christian life? The Lord is my shepherd. That is all I want. And if we can say that, we're on the right track. Father, we thank you now for your word. Thank you for Christ. We thank you for the great salvation that is ours in you. Lord, there are people here that don't know you. I don't know who they are. You do. And I pray that even today they would see the great message of salvation, so great salvation, brought to us through Christ, communicated now in the scriptures, and is ours. For, the, for taking and believing. I pray, Lord, for anyone here in that situation, may they come to you even today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.